Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today our guest is Kat Coiro, director of the utterly charming new romantic comedy, Marry Me, starring Jennifer Lopez as a pop star who is on the brink of marrying her boyfriend before an audience of millions when she finds out he's a cheater. So instead, she marries a random guy in the audience, played by Owen Wilson, who is holding a sign that says, Marry Me, the title of her new song with the boyfriend, played by Colombian pop star Maluma. I, I think I kind of raced past something important. This beautiful, famous, wealthy pop icon marries a random dude, but he turns out to be a great random dude. Marry Me is about the randomness of love and the patterns we recognize in our lives as we get older and possibly wiser, and the music is great. Kat Coro, as you may know, is extremely in demand. She's about to direct The Husband's Secret, based on the book by Big Little Lies author Leanne Moriarty, and she's also directing Marvel's new She-Hulk series, starring Tatiana Maslany as the Jade Skin heroine. I think I maybe sound at one point in this interview like I don't like rom-coms, but I do, so I may be overcorrect later in the interview and start to sound like a person who is obsessed with rom-coms and um, maybe come off as nuts. I don't know. Also, the friend I mentioned who writes rom-coms is Keith Denny, one of my co-hosts on the Low-Key Podcast, a podcast you should totally check out after this one. Also, I don't know if Keith would agree that his movies are romantic comedies. Uh, he might call them dramas with comedic elements. I'm not sure. I'm, I feel like I'm making a lot of mistakes in this intro. I'm just trying to be transparent with you to keep it real. Don't be fooled by the rocks that I got. I'm still, I'm still Jenny from the block. And now here's Kat Coiro, director of Marry Me, which you can see in theaters or on Peacock. So Kat Coiro, congratulations on Marry Me. My wife and I watched it this past weekend. We really enjoyed it. We had a lot of fun. And thank you so much for being here on Movie Maker. Thanks for having me, Tim. I'm happy to be here. Always happy to talk about Marry Me. <laughs> <laughs> so just to start, how did you get involved in this movie? How did you become a director? I mean, looking through your Wikipedia, which may be wrong, you've had an incredible life. I mean, Carnegie Mellon, you lived in Russia for a while, um, directed a ton of huge pilots and other television work. What is your, what's your origin story? Um, you know, I started in the theater. So when I was really young in elementary school, I decided I wanted to be a theater actor. I went to a performing arts middle school, a performing arts high school, a conservatory. And um, yeah, and, and while I was at Carnegie Mellon, I went and studied abroad in Russia at the Moscow Art Theater, all part of this trajectory to put me on the stage. I really wanted to work with the Royal Shakespeare Company. When I graduated, I did, I actually went to Portland um, to Oregon Shakespeare Festival and did Much Ado About Nothing. I did Off-Broadway Theater in New York. And that kind of took me into the world of television. And I did some TV shows and I did a pilot, I did independent film. And the more I worked as an actress, the less I enjoyed it. And I started seeing for the first time the other side where you get to be in control of the storytelling. And um, I, I was really intrigued. So I started writing and directing shorts first. Um, did, a, did a handful of shorts that were really less about the finished product and more about learning the art of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. um, and then I made this little short called Idiots, um, which premiered on Funny or Die and was produced by Funny or Die. And it went viral and I got an agent. Um, and then I decided, that if I was going to pursue this seriously, I wanted to train in the technical side of things because I knew a lot about 
you know, the actor side of things that, that, you know, that world that I'd come from. Um, but I wanted to know about the technical. So I applied to the master's program at AFI. And while I was there, I ended up getting funding for a feature film I had written with my friend, Kristen Ritter. And I dropped out of AFI. We made Life Happens. And then I, then I was in this micro indie budget world because Life Happens was like $200,000. I went and did another movie called And While We Were Here for $150,000 shot in 11 days. And then I did a third and I loved it. I had such a great experience, but I felt like if I kept going on that track, I would always be compromising and cutting corners and never quite making things exactly the way I wanted to. So then I transitioned to television. I did commercials in between that, kind of done it all. Well, this kind of leads into something I wanted to ask you about. Uh, we often ask filmmakers who've done smaller films and have done huge films, and I would call Marry Me more of a huge film. Um, what is the difference? I mean, is it is it easier to make a smaller or a larger film? And Denis Villeneuve in the last episode said that the difference is the, di the distance from your car to the camera, where on a huge film, you just have to talk to 150 people and answer all these questions. On a smaller film, it's a much shorter walk. Um, what's your experience been? Because you've really seen both sides. I mean, funnily, I wouldn't call Mary Me huge. We were $20 million and that includes all the actors' paychecks. And we're shooting in New York City, huge concert sequences, so many locations. So at the end of the day, I felt that my indie roots really helped me. We had to be very creative um, with our budget with, with this film. One example is we had 29 days, which we could not pack everything into those 29 days. So we ended up breaking out three set pieces and putting them in during our prep. When we didn't have a full crew, um, we'd shot Jimmy Fallon during a prep day. We shot uh, Coney Island during a prep day. And we shot the big Madison Square Garden concert during a real Madison Square Garden concert that Maluma was having that we piggybacked because we couldn't afford Madison Square Garden. We couldn't afford all those extras. Um, so that was a real concert. Um, and, you know, we filmed their performance on the empty stage while they were loading in. Um, and then we filmed her coming out and the audience reacting and the big wide shots during the actual concert. Um, and, you know, thinking outside the box like that, being crafty, even on a larger film, comes directly from these ultra low budget films where you just have to make it work and you have to you have to really push the boundaries of how things get made. So you're shooting Owen Wilson and Sarah Silverman during the load-in and then you're shooting the concert during the actual concert. No, this is the Madison Square Garden concert at the end where they perform the Ballad of Marry Me. So Owen and Sarah are watching it on a laptop. Oh, right, 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 okay. Maluma and Jennifer, uh, Maluma and Jennifer you know, were performing during Maluma's concert. Gotcha. Okay, I was thinking about the first, um, the proposal, how you did that, because that's an incredible crowd scene too. Uh, you know, a lot of that crowd is actual, um, actually CGI. We had a very small number of people there. So, you know, everyone around Owen and Sarah is real, but it was a lot of moving those same groups of people around and tiling 
and then creating virtual people. Um, it looked so good. It felt so immersive. And I just kept thinking, how did they do this during COVID? So now I know. We didn't. We shot this at the end of 2019, believe it or not. We were kind of one of the last films in New York City to film before COVID. Um, and then we were scheduled to be released three times and it just get, you know, it kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed uh, because they really wanted to do a theatrical release, but COVID was happening. Um, so yeah, we, we actually did film before everything got crazy. Okay, all right, that, that answers a lot of questions too. Um, and I think getting a Valentine's Day release is just perfect. It was like- I know, we were number one on Valentine's Day. It was so- Isn't that awesome? And, uh, you know, and because we were also streaming, it was, right. you know, this whole day and date is still a little bit of an experiment. Um, so we're very, very excited with how it all turned out, given that. Yeah, I think every movie gets kind of a longer life now where the opening weekend becomes less important and people will discover a movie three weeks or two months later. It just happened with House of Gucci where it just erupted again after yeah. three months. So I think you've got a long, I mean, this is a universal story and this has a long, long life. I think people could watch this for years. Well, I have already gotten messages from people telling me they've watched it three, four, 10 times, you know, and I always felt that it was one of those movies that you could watch again and again. There's something comforting and hopeful and positive about it. So the fundamental idea is so crazy. Um, she gets, finds out she's been cheated on right before she's supposed to get married on stage. She sort of grabs a guy out of the audience. He's holding a friend's marry me sign. He's Owen Wilson. She's Jennifer Lopez there's just this big question of will this work out will this just be a one-time thing the fundamental idea of the movie is so wild where does it start like what is the origin of this movie it's actually based on a graphic novel mm -hmm. uh, called marry me by bobby crosby and it, it is a preposterous setup it's ludicrous and ridiculous and out there um and i think that's part of the fun it's yeah. a fantasy and it's you, you know, I was very interested in grounding the film in reality and grounding the performances in reality, but truthfully, it is really a strange setup. Um, and I, it's part of what I love about it is that there's an escapism, there's a wish fulfillment to it where it's not necessarily realistic, but at the same time, what is, what is realistic when it comes to love? Love is, a fantasy love is preposterous and ludicrous and ridiculous and the little tag at the end of the film with the real people talking about how they met came out of justifying this setup and when I really started to think about it I was struck by how it's a miracle that any two people end up together whether their whether their story is small or big out there or normal it's just such a miracle when two people come together and can make it work um, and that was the approach that I had, you know, when looking at this setup was just like, sure, it's crazy, but lots of things are crazy. I agree with you hundred percent. And I think one reason the movie works so well is that you have these actors who are kind of known for being grounded and maybe even cynical. I mean, Sarah Silverman is like known for fairly, <laughs> she's actually very hopeful lately, but um, compared to a lot of comedians, but she doesn't seem like a person who's like a sucker, you know what I mean? And to have her like right there as kind of the audience surrogate, I think works really well. And John Bradley is really great um, for people who know him from Game of Thrones as the manager. There's really not a single role that feels like just kind of 
they'll do. Like everybody seems really perfectly cast, starting with the leads. Oh, well, look, Jennifer is a producer. She was attached to the project before I came on. This part was crafted for her. When I read the script, I actually didn't know she was attached. And I thought, well, it's cool, but who the hell can play this role? And then I found out it was Jennifer. I was like, oh, this can work. <laughs> she's so she's so incredible. And she has, you know, this wealth of experience that she brings to the role that very few people understand. Um, Owen was really my my pitch on this film because I wanted somebody with that quiet confidence and humility, but someone who could also really go toe to toe with Jennifer. I never wanted it to feel like we were disappointed that she was ending up with this guy. Even though he's not rich and famous, he has a real integrity to him and he brings out the best in her and he actually makes her life better even though his life is small. Um, and Owen really was the only the only choice for me. I've just always been a fan of him, and I think he's so singular and unique. Um, and I love what you said about Sarah because it, it it's true. Sarah's so smart, and she's always looking at things, you know, through a a critical lens and and an analytic lens. And so that was part of our idea of having her there. She's not just comic relief. She's kind of on the audience's side of this is crazy, but I'm gonna go with it. <laughs> and and I, I love I love the way you described that um, with her. And yeah, and John, John was actually an inspiration of our producer, Elaine Goldsmith Thomas, who the, the role was written as a much more cynical um, kind of, you know, longtime manager, been through the ringer. And then Elaine was like, what if he's someone new to the team who's trying to keep up? And I, I had a Zoom with John and he said, you know, I see this character as, as, as a duck. And I thought, what on earth is he talking about? <laughs> and he said, the top part of me above the water looks pretty serene and placid, but then you go under the water and the legs are beating and kicking and trying to, and I loved that. And I said, that is the character because he is a, a little bit out of his, his depth, a little out of his league. Um, and John is just so kind, you know, and you wanted, you wanted her to have somebody kind in her life who, yes, he's, he's on the payroll. Yes, he's not technically a friend. He's an employee, but he has a genuine care for her. And Michelle Buteau. Oh, and Chloe Coleman, who plays the daughter. She was someone I saw in Big Little Lies. And again, there was no auditions for that role. Uh, she, she was the one for me. I'm coming from an acting background too. That's always, you know, I'm, I, I feel like that's really one of my strengths is is casting and and seeing the role from the actor's point of view also. How do you feel about the state of rom-coms now? It seems like they're doing great on Netflix. They're doing great on streaming. They haven't done as well in recent years. I mean, because I grew up like in Nora Ephron era when I didn't realize it, but we had just this amazing like smorgasbord of incredible rom-coms. Do you feel like they're at a weird place at a good place you know i have i feel very strongly and mixed about this question you know on the one hand i feel like people often ask is the rom-com dead and i'm like no the rom-com is the most enduring genre that exists you know mm -hmm. from charlie chaplin to the 40s and 50s to the nora efron to um you know to today it it sure it ebbs and it flows but it never dies and i sometimes feel like the question is it dead <laughs> is just a setup to 
you know, setting things up to fail. And I do think rom-com as a genre is a traditionally female um, genre and that there is an inherent sexism in the way that it's approached. It's constantly denigrated and yet it's constantly beloved and loved. And yeah. I, I, look, I found it interesting that we went to streaming today and day. You know, when you look at the movies we came up against in the theaters, uh, Death in the Nile and Jackass, they were theatrical only. Yeah. Um, and, you know, do I think it would have made a difference if we were theatrical only? Absolutely. Do they say women don't go to the theater? They do. And then how much content is there in the theaters for women? Not a ton. <laughs> and, you know, if you say something, it's going to be true. So I, 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 I have, a, you know, I, I think that even the way that rom-coms are talked about, it's kind of as if it's a lesser genre as if it's not worthy, the way that critics treat it. You know, when you look at the, when you look at the reviews versus the audience score, it's like, it doesn't line up here. People love rom-coms, but they're never, you know, they don't win awards. They don't get great reviews. So it's a strange relationship I, I find. And, and uh, you know, is it true that women don't go to the theater or is it true that we don't put content in the theaters for women? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they have a lot of appeal. One of my good friends is a 35-year-old filmmaker in Texas who likes anime and comics and Star Wars, and the only scripts he writes are rom-coms. I mean, so yeah. it's not the whole the whole idea that, oh, this is just for, you know, women or people on dates and the guy has been dragged along or something just seems really corny, honestly, and not not true. And I mean, if you look at like it's not a rom-com, but it's definitely a romance. I mean, A Star is Born, that's an incredible movie for everybody. And I don't know, I, I agree with you. I'd like to see more of them. I'd like to see more good ones. But A Star is Born gets to be a drama. You know, it's a right. drama with music. And as soon as you put the rom-com label, um, there's, a, there's a snobbishness to the approach. And, and yet the truth is people love rom-coms. I do think, you know, in terms of the ebbs and flows, I think when, when people try to reinvent the wheel or kind of infuse it with this darkness and sarcasm, it doesn't work as well. To me, it's a hopeful genre. It's a, it's a genre about finding love and, um, and you don't have to reinvent it. One thing with Marry Me is we leaned in to all of the cliches of the rom-com unabashedly and, and without being ashamed of it. Like, you know, we have people running through airports. We have people holding up signs. We've got references to Pretty Woman and Notting Hill. And, and I really loved just going, yes, this is fully a rom-com. And we love that about it. And we lean on the history of the rom-com um, and, and, and trust that people will love it. And it is funny what you say about men and women. I had more men tell me they cried during Marry Me than women, for sure. <laughs> oh my God. Many more. <laughs> that's awesome that's absolutely awesome yeah it's just I don't know it's it's frustrating to see it get denigrated because it is an incredibly great genre and when you just look back on the movies that people really love when they watch the Oscar reels from the last like 60 years like half of it is rom-coms so I don't know maybe we remember them as something else and I don't know were there any rom-com conventions that you set out to destroy that you were just like I don't like this one, I'm gonna change it? Um, I mean, look, I think we touched on it a little with 
with Sarah's character being the, the wacky friend. Usually the wacky friend is, you know, of the same sex and it's like the wacky friend of the woman. And, you know, so we made um, Parker be Charlie's best friend. And like you said, she is a funny comic relief, but she also looks at things in a, in a different way. Um, so that was something we talked about a lot. And one, one thing that was so funny, there was a moment where in the script, the mother of Lou, Charlie's ex was dead. Mm. And I was kind of talking about it at home and my daughter, who's the same age as the Lou character, she said, oh no, not another dead mother. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a really insightful moment to me of, you know, I think kids are really savvy audience members and we changed it that they were divorced and that the mother was still in the picture, which actually really helped because then Charlie could go and have these dates and weekends and not be like, where is his child? Which is something that drives me crazy in movies as a parent. I'm like, where, how are they leaving their kids behind while they're doing all this? A hundred percent. I have two kids and every time I see that, I'm like, they wouldn't do that. Like you just wouldn't leave your kid. You wouldn't run across the neighbor and go, can you watch them? I need to go save the world. I'll be back someday. Exactly. And it was something that Owen was so conscious of, of like always, you know, how, how is my character going to protect my daughter first and foremost before the romance? Um, and I love that, you know, there, there's a maturity to their romance that I really appreciate, which I think is another, um, another convention that we set out to break. It, this is not about all consuming, you know, sacrifice my life for you kind of love. This is about love that makes the other person, you know, that makes each of the people in the relationship better. And nobody is sacrificing their career or giving anything up. They're kind of coming together in a very mature way. And I love their age. You know, I remember there were definitely talks at the beginning of like, you know, this. You, you can't have older people in a rom-com. Um, and of course you have the Nancy Myers, but they were much older. And these guys are right, you know, they're 50. And I liked playing them that way. I read some review that said, you know, they're playing people in their forties. And I was like, where was that implied? Yeah. <laughs> they're playing their age. It helps that Jennifer Lopez doesn't age. That's, you know, a positive, I guess, for- but She has all the, you know, she has all the gravitas and the life experience. Uh, of someone who is the age she is. And we all know how old she is. And it's a, to me, it's a celebration of, you know, love at that age when you, when you have sorted out a lot of things in your life, but you still want romance. Yeah, I'm 46. I'm like around, I'm around their age range. And it did feel like they had enough life behind them that every, all their decisions made sense. Like it wasn't, it wasn't people who were looking for an answer for what am I going to be as a person and yeah. finding it in another person. They were both complete people already, which I appreciated. Yeah. And we talked a lot about, you know, Kat Valdez having these patterns and a lot, a lot of her patterns have to do with people she's working with and people she's creatively stimulated by and confusing that for love. And one of the things that the, at the outset that people would say to me is, you know, Owen and Jennifer, but they're such a weird couple. And I was like, that is exactly the point. You want people who you would never expect to be together, but then it works. And when you look at the relationship she has with Bastian, who, you know, is in his twenties, yeah. it is 
a relationship of grand gestures and public displays of affection and, you know, putting it all out there. And, you know, the, the Cat-Charlie relationship becomes the, the counter to that, which is the small moments and the, you know, sitting on the couch, watching a show and eating dinner, which it can be much more romantic than the big public displays of affection. The script when I came on ended with another wedding between, you know, between Charlie and Cat. And I was like, I really don't want, as much as I like the Shakespearean formula of ending on a wedding, I really want it to end on a small moment of life. And it, it's not about the, it's not about the big stuff. It's about the little stuff. Yeah. We talked about a lot of the challenges, but can you, was there any particular challenge in making this that we haven't talked about yet? You know, to me, this, this movie really would have died if the concert sequences felt small or dinky. Um, and so one of the big challenges within our budget was making those concerts feel big. And, you know, to anyone who's ever gone to a Maluma or a Jennifer Lopez concert, not feeling like, um, like it was a bad representation or a cheap representation of that. And so we actually collaborated with Jennifer's and Maluma's stage teams, you know, to get the LED walls and the costumes and the lighting. And my uh, cinematographer, Florian Bauhaus, who I just love, he's amazing. I work with him on everything now. You know, that was one of his first concerns is we can't do movie lighting for those concerts. We need concert lighting. Yeah. And so we brought in her music team um, to do those. Um, you know, working with kids is always a challenge because your hours are much shorter and there's no wiggle room. You can't get 10 minutes more if you need it because of the union laws with children. Um, so that was a challenge, but honestly, it was a really joyous experience. It was, it was so fun. And as I've been doing press for the film, I'm, I'm kind of taken back to that time many years ago now with COVID of it all. <laughs> and, there's something about the positivity of the story and then you add a musical layer to that and my memories of shooting this film are 100% joyous. You know, to, to spend a whole day watching people do church, you know, do the, the musical number is just fun. It's as fun as you might imagine it would be. The acoustic song she does at the dance is jaw-droppingly good. All the music is good, but that one in particular, I was just like, oh my God, this is fantastic. So yeah, that's absolutely true. You yeah. know, one thing, when, when I read the script, it was kind of like, and we see a sliver of this song and we see the end of this song. And I said, I really want to see all the songs in their entirety. I want this to feel like we are living in these musical numbers. And part of the challenge of that is, you know, if the songs just feel like songs and kind of thematic departures from the movie, it would be very jarring. And so one of the greatest challenges were, was finding songs that we could weave into the narrative fabric of the film. So when you go into that prom scene or the for, uh, fall semi-formal scene, it's not just a performance, it's also telling the story of Cat and Charlie and where she is emotionally. And, and so selecting the songs for the film was a huge challenge. Uh, we had some great people at Universal Music, um, Rachel Levy and Mike Knobloch, and they would send us batches of a hundred songs. 
that the producer Elaine and Jennifer and Jennifer's music guy, Benny and I would listen to and then we'd all come together. And, and it had to, you know, fit with what she felt comfortable doing musically and what, you know, what she liked, but also fit into the story, um, yeah. the story of the, of the film. And that formal song was interesting because when I first met Jennifer, I sat down with her and she was singing along to a different song on a Bluetooth and the Bluetooth dropped out and she kept singing. And I, I was really moved because seeing Jennifer Lopez without any production value, without any producing, without any, anything, just her raw voice was a revelation because we're so used to seeing the big gigantic, you know, J-Lo. And I thought, my God, she can really sing and she is so good. And I wanna make sure we have that in the film. And that formal scene and also the beginning of On My Way were directly tied to that moment with her where I thought if we can, if we can show the audience, you know, the stripped down version of, of Kat Valdez, um, I think it'd be really exciting for people. That was Kat Coiro, director of Marry Me, which you can see in theaters or on Peacock. Hey, uh, do you like our new intro and exit music? If you do, if you don't, let us know on Repod. It's the best place to communicate with me and suggest guests, suggest questions for those guests, to tell us we should book more uh, rom-com directors, um, or I don't know, more directors of obscure Norwegian movies, whatever you're into. Norwegian rom-coms, you know, worst person in the world kind of a rom-com, Norwegian. Maybe that checks all the boxes for you. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, reach out to us on Repod. We'd love to hear your thoughts about everything about the show. And we will see you back here very soon. Also, feel free to visit us anytime you like at moviemaker.com.